to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Among all of the topics that I've covered on episodes of this podcast, some have resonated with certain groups of listeners, others have only been relevant to other groups. But one topic is relatable to every single human being, the fact that we live in our bodies. So succinctly summed up in the 1970s landmark text, Our Bodies, Ourselves. It was with this in mind that I started reading Kate Mann's book, Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia, which was released in January 2023. Over the course of the few days that I was reading this book, I noticed that the topic of fat bodies came up in multiple conversations and several media articles into my inbox, everyone with an opinion and everyone full of concern, primarily about the medical implications of fatness. So I was very struck by a passage in the book, Unshrinking, where after debunking several of the very medical beliefs that I was encountering, Mann writes, quote, even if fat people are subject to greater health risks purely on account of our fatness, how much does this matter practically and to the public discourse swirling around our bodies? We still deserve support, compassion, and adequate health care. We still deserve to be treated like human beings, end quote. This struck my heart powerfully, and I am so excited to discuss this topic today with legendary feminist philosopher Kate Mann. Welcome, Kate. We're so excited to hear from you today. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. So now we'll start with your professional bio first, and then I'll have you introduce yourself more personally in a minute. Kate Mann is an associate professor at the Sage School of Philosophy at Cornell University, where she's been teaching since 2013. Before that, she was a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows from 2011 to 2013, and she did her graduate work in philosophy at MIT from 2006 to 2011. And before that, she was an undergrad at the University of Melbourne, where she studied philosophy, logic, and computer science. Now, Kate does moral philosophy, especially metaethics and moral psychology, feminist philosophy, and social philosophy. She also enjoys writing opinion pieces, essays, and reviews for a wider audience. She has published multiple highly acclaimed and widely read books, including Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny in 2017, entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women in 2020, and Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia, which is the book we'll be discussing today. So I can't recommend these books highly enough to listeners, all three of these books that I just listed. And just really, again, so honored and excited to have you here, Kate. And I wonder if you can start us off by telling us now a bit more about you personally, where you're from, and kind of your experiences that led you to write each of your books, and especially the book that just came out, I think this week, right? I just got yes. my copy in the mail. Yeah. So tell just us about yourself. Ago. Yeah. Yes, I'd love to. I am an Australian author and philosopher. I grew up about an hour outside of Melbourne, and I am often asked, because I have written two books on misogyny, and in those books I argued that misogyny is something girls and women face rather than something that men feel deep in their hearts. But when I wrote those two books on misogyny, I was often asked how I first got interested in the subject. And I found that I really couldn't tell that story without telling a story about fat phobia and its intersection with misogyny, because I was one of three girls at a hitherto all-boys school the year it integrated in Melbourne and in the outskirts of Melbourne. 
And I faced a lot of misogyny during those two final years of high school where I was bullied and belittled for my then merely somewhat fat body. I was, I would say, a merely chubby teen. But nevertheless, the form that misogyny often took was bullying and belittling for my size. So that really is the origin story for my interest in misogyny and also my interest in fat phobia as a social system that oppresses so many of us and has particularly pointy intersections with misogyny, racism, classism, ableism, transphobia, and more. Hmm. Okay, well, that's a perfect bridge, actually, to kind of dive into the book itself, because one of the things that really struck me was right as I started the book in the introduction, you were so vulnerable, you wrote really personally. And I found that to be incredibly courageous. And I wanted to just ask you about that, um, ask about the introduction, and then your choice throughout the book to talk about your personal experiences rather than just, you know, with some academic remove and talk about it more philosophically. Thank you, Amy. I really appreciate the kindness. It was a decision partly because I feel like I've been mired in shame since those early experiences, really. And because of that shame, which is a really natural result of being shamed, of having disgust directed at your body, I won't get too deep into it, but I had things like fat bitch scrawled on my locker, which was also doused in fish oil. I was voted the person most likely to have to pay for sex at the high school leavers last assembly. It was really humiliating. And I think that the subsequent experience of shame has this really characteristic set of effects on people bodily. So think about the characteristic expression of shame in head bowed, eyes lowered, wanting to disappear, breaking the sight line between yourself and other people. Mm. And so instead of being mired in that shame, this book is really an exercise in trying to lift my head up meet the reader's gaze and find solidarity and community in not being shamefaced about those experiences that are so not unique to me that so many of us have had experiences of feeling ashamed of our bodies in various ways for various reasons and that I think invite the possibility of community and connection and one can really only do that by being vulnerable and saying, hey, um, this is my story me too, to invoke the name of Tarana Burke's amazing movement that she's been leading for well over a decade now. The Me Too is an invitation to relate to those stories and to find solidarity rather than shame as a basis for then collective political action. Well, I'll just say again, as a reader too, I just noticed that when I finished the book, I had so many takeaways and many of them were philosophical and like logical arguments and, you know, data based. But I'm thinking like when I think about this book five or 10 years from now, and I'll probably read it again (laughs) too, but the most powerful takeaways sometimes are actually the empathy pieces, like stories. And there were certain stories that you told that 
it's making me emotional to think about it, but really, really impacted me emotionally. And I'm just thinking for people who haven't done that mental exercise of, of empathy, of thinking about what it feels like for someone, like the bullies, whoever wrote that horrible thing on your locker. I mean, my hope and wish is that everyone would read it, those who struggle with the internalized shame, but also those who shame others. I mean, that could be world changing because to take a step into somebody else's lived experience is sometimes the most powerful thing of all. So I'm grateful that you included both. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Yeah. So to start off, let's talk about the term fat phobia itself. Why did you choose that term? And I'll just say here too, that just by coincidence, I discovered another activist in this field as I was reading your book And she said that she personally doesn't use the term fat phobia. So I thought I'd just give you an opportunity to talk about the choice of that word and what it means to different people. Yes, totally. So the terms fat phobia and anti-fatness I use synonymously, and I like both of those terms. One potential problem with the term fat phobia that some brilliant people in this space have pointed to, thinkers like Aubrey Gordon, is that they could potentially sound like they're individual forms of fear and loathing or hatred, almost like agoraphobia or something like that, or arachnophobia. But I think the phobia parallel with forms of oppression that are really well recognized among left-wing and liberal people like transphobia and homophobia is the parallel that will be salient to many readers. So I tend to think that fat phobia is useful in establishing those parallels with broad systems of social oppression that we're perhaps somewhat more accustomed to thinking about critically and viewing ourselves as having a role in fighting them. So that's one reason I like the term fat phobia because I actually think that it does highlight these parallels. And I have a slight worry that anti-fat bias can itself sound a little bit individualistic because bias is often thought of as something that is psychological and in people's heads. But there'll never be a perfect term for any of these things. In the end, we just have to think about them in a way that is healthier and more productive and generative and fruitful. So I think that people working in the space we're generally on the same side of thinking of these as big structural forms of oppression rather than mere forms of interpersonal hostility that could be combated just by changing people's attitudes. We certainly do need to change attitudes, but we also need to change the world and the social structures that oftentimes fat people are facing in navigating a world that is actively hostile to us and our bodies. Yeah, that was a big takeaway that I had. So as long as we're talking about terminology, I know in the book, it was really useful for me also to read your discussion about the term just fat people and talking about kind of reclaiming the word fat. Could you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. So I know that the word fat can be uncomfortable for many people who view it as a shaming term. But like many people who are working in this body liberation or fat activist tradition, I'm someone who thinks that we can reclaim the term and use it as a merely neutral description of some bodies, much like short or tall or for that matter thin. We should use all these terms neutrally just to describe a way some bodies happen to be without any shame or judgment or anything negative attached to it. 
So I prefer the term fat, which is matter of fact in that way, to terms like curvy or euphemisms like husky or fluffy or anything like that feels a bit like it's dancing around the point that there's something quite healing in just being able to name fat bodies as such. And I'm also against medicalizing, stigmatizing terminology like overweight or obese. I do use those terms in the book when I'm discussing medical studies that use those categories from the notoriously problematic BMI charts that have a long and storied history and that are really inaccurate in lots of ways, very reductive. But those terms really imply there's something wrong with having more flesh. And the science on this often belies that point. It turns out that people in the quote unquote overweight category have the lowest mortality risk, statistically speaking. So it raises the question over what weight? So those terms to me are not more accurate. They're actually full of stigmatizing and inaccurate connotations that we should distance ourselves from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about too in the book how, I mean, I think I've been guilty of this too when a little child, I have four kids, and like if a little child will point to someone when they're little, right, and say, oh, mom, she's so fat or he's so (laughs) fat or something, and you'll hear the mom say, oh, honey, like, don't say that. Or if they say it about themselves, like, am I fat? Like, no, 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 don't say that about yourself. That's instantly stigmatizing to whoever you're, you know, you're thinking about and gives the child the message that it's bad, that there's something wrong with it, right? It's such an understandable instinct as a parent. And I have had moments of having to restrain that impulse in myself. But it's much better, I think, ultimately, to in these ongoing conversations, which a brilliant book on this topic, by the way, is my friend Virginia Sol Smith's book, Fat Talk, Parenting in an Age of Diet Culture, which emphasizes that We can talk about fatness as not a bad word, as not something to be avoided. Of course, it's a little tricky if a child comments on someone else's body and they might not be comfortable with the term fat, but then the message can be, oh, we don't comment on people's bodies or what they look like. But to emphasize in other discussions, there's no contrast between being fat and being smart, being beautiful, being successful fat people are really cool and do all sorts of cool and awesome things. And why wouldn't you want to be like an Aubrey Gordon or a Virginia Soul Smith or any number of fat people who you can hold up as examples of fabulous people living their lives, doing cool things who happen to be in larger bodies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've become someone who in those conversations will talk about my fat tummy in a way that's really unapologetic And it has this nice effect where my daughter will now call me her squishy little mommy, which (laughs) I think is actually beautiful and really accurate. I'm a petite fat person. I'm only 5'2", and I'm a small fat person as well, but I'm very squishy. I am someone who identifies as a small fat for those listeners who haven't heard this terminology it's useful oftentimes to distinguish between people who are at different points in the fat spectrum. So small fat, mid fat and large fat people, because it's good for someone like me to own the fact that I have a certain amount of privilege as a small fat person. But yeah, not 
using euphemisms or making children afraid of fatness, but rather thinking that fatness is compatible with every wonderful way of being in the world. I think that is where I have come to think is perhaps the healthiest way to approach these admittedly fraught conversations. Fabulous. Thank you, Kate. So you talked a bit a minute ago about structures that exist in our world that create really difficult situations for fat people as they navigate the world. Can you talk about some common difficulties that fat people face? Yes, absolutely. So one piece of it is what starts very early on for fat children, which is schoolyard bullying. So it seems like weight is probably the commonest basis for a schoolyard bullying, which is really distressing. And fat pupils also face negative stereotypes from their teachers. So children are categorized as less able academically and less physically capable in PE classes and so on as they gain weight. So their objective test scores don't change, and yet teachers classify them as less competent when they're in larger bodies. So that is a form of discrimination that desperately needs to change. And it's really systemic. It's something where we see this affecting people at all stages through the lifespans. It dogs people in education. And then we find that some studies from the 90s, admittedly, but which uh, I would be very interested to see replicated today, show that parents are even less willing to support their fat daughters specifically to attend college, which Mm. is really heartbreaking. And then we see this affects people hugely in the workplace where if you look at employees' hiring practices, they are just much less likely to hire someone who is seen as, quote unquote, overweight or obese. And this is, again, particularly true for fat women. So one particularly revealing study showed that if you compared a fat woman, a thin woman, a fat man, and a thin man for a range of employment opportunities from everything from a lecturer to a business person to a manual laborer to an administrator. People picked the thin man as the most plausible, competent employee for each and every job opening, and the fat woman as the least promising candidate for each and every job opening. So this is really rife because Spoiler alert, there was no difference between their CVs. They were just rotated between the participants so that people got the same information about these four potential employees on average. So we see that this uh, kind of hiring practice is hugely discriminatory in real world scenarios too, and that there are just massive wage disparities, again, particularly which affect fat women. So a very fat woman versus a very thin woman there is an annual average wage gap for millennials in these categories of $40,000 annually. It's like a whole salary's worth of difference between the very fat and the very thin women. So this is costing people economic opportunity. It's costing people wages accumulating over their lifetime. And then crucially, it's also costing people adequate health care. So this is one of the biggest pieces of fat phobia that is structural and urgently needs combating. Fat patients are subject to numerous pernicious stereotypes about our being lazy, slovenly, non-compliant, weak-willed. Doctors and nurses will say these things quite explicitly and make really stigmatizing assumptions about our exercise and eating habits. 
There was one study that really stuck with me when I was doing the research on this book, showing that physicians will explicitly tick the box that says for a fat patient, this patient is more likely to annoy me, this patient will seem like a waste of my time, and I have less desire to help this patient. So this isn't implicit bias, this is really explicit stuff, where again, in one older study, nurses said about a quarter of them said that they were repulsed by fat patients and didn't want to touch us. So people are getting really terrible medical care resulting in the fact that many fat people go to the doctor, the doctor doesn't see past our fatness and our real problems go undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. And so I recount stories in the book of fat people who had really serious forms of cancer and were not diagnosed until it was nearly too late or too late in some cases for them to receive adequate treatment. And this isn't mere anecdata either. We see this show up in the fact that fat patients are 1.65 times more likely to have serious undiagnosed medical conditions upon autopsy. Things like lung carcinoma and endocarditis, meaning that these undiagnosed conditions could have been what killed them and yet they weren't able to get adequate medical care in their lifetime. Or as other studies show, they may have avoided medical care because of the expectation of being weight shamed and stigmatized at their doctor. So we also have studies showing again for fat women, fat people avoid medical care as they get heavier. So yeah, this is a world which is oppressing people in ways that are severe and systemic and interconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this reminds me of a passage in the book where you quote Rebecca Pearl, and she says, I wrote this down, so I hope it's okay that I, I quote yes, you quoting please. her. <laughs> she says, quote, there is a common misconception that stigma might help motivate individuals with obesity to lose weight and improve their health. And she says, we are finding that it has quite the opposite effect. That's the end of the quote. But yes, it, like you said in the book, you talk about that the stress of stigma itself increases inflammation and cortisol levels, which are associated with negative health outcomes. And then, like you said, the stigma and shame keep people from going to the doctor. And this was really thought provoking for me as I've thought back to my own, like taking mm -hmm. my kids to the doctor through their lifetimes and having them, their weight has fluctuated a lot. I think all of them, mine did too, my husband's did too, and just it does feel like almost phobia from the doctors of like, uh, like they're getting up there on the chart. Do you want me to talk to them? And me being like, no, that's going to make everything worse. Like, I'm not worried. My kid isn't worried. Nothing's changed about their life. Why do you seem so freaked out that the percentile Absolutely. changes? So it, that's so interesting. But I'd never considered that that might be like systemic throughout the entire medical field that doctors are so trained this way. It really is. And I think you've pointed to a crucial piece of it, which is weight stigma has terrible health effects. For children, we see that weight stigma is incredibly linked to eating disorders which have enormous prevalence worldwide. One in five children and adolescents show patterns of disordered eating with girls being disproportionately affected. Hmm. And one of the biggest triggers for disordered eating, sadly, is being categorized as overweight by her parents. And that often does start at the doctor's office for many girls. Another big trigger is being put on a diet. And then later in people's lifespan, we find that weight stigma has these independent 
really marked health ill effects. So you add up the pieces of this picture with larger people facing really inadequate medical care, facing weight stigma, facing many other forms of bias and treatment that will have market health ill effects. And then is it any wonder that heavier people are often, there are correlations with them having certain health problems. Now there is, as far as I can tell based on my philosophers look at the empirical research, so I'm not a doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a medical researcher of any kind. The really open question in this field is, is higher weight causing people to have greater health problems or is it mere correlation? And that's an open question because there is so much going on when someone gets to a heavier weight, including weight bias, including lack of adequate medical care, including confounding factors, like they might be not getting the kind of exercise that we know is very good for the human body. There might be confounds of what people are able to access in terms of their diet. We really shouldn't be just assuming people's weight is the primary driver for health outcomes being negative. We should be uh, open-minded that this may be mere correlation and that a lot of what's going on in these cases could be that weight stigma is driving these differential outcomes for people who are very heavy. And again, these sorts of correlations don't kick in until higher weights than are often assumed, a BMI of maybe 35 or 40, according to some studies. So people who are in bodies that are classified as too fat are often not at greater mortality risks than average weight people, with overweight people, in fact, being the healthiest category, statistically speaking, and moderately obese people, in scare quotes, having the same kinds of mortality risks as people who are in the so-called normal weight category. But yeah, those health ill effects that are on many people's minds when they think about these topics, if we want to address those for very heavy people, then we should get really serious about facing weight stigma and weight bias that is at least part of what is going on in these cases, as well as sheer weight itself. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can dig in on a few of those specific issues because your book challenges a lot of very commonly held beliefs that were really surprising to me. So maybe we could talk about a few. Some that stood out to me were, again, you've mentioned the overall health risks, which turn out to be not what everybody's told, and then Mm -hmm. specifically correlation with diabetes. Maybe you could talk about a couple of those. Yeah, totally. So one of the biggest incontrovertible correlations that we get in this domain is that type 2 diabetes and being a higher weight are highly correlated, and that's certainly true. But some of the emerging research in this field shows that it may be that the causation is partly going in the other direction and that early diabetic processes such as insulin resistance are driving weight gain rather than weight gain driving early diabetic processes. Mm -hmm. So according to, again, the best cutting edge research in this field, we have to be careful here to make simple, straightforward assumptions when the reality is that the relationship between weight and health is really complicated. And another piece of it that I think is worth mentioning here is that many studies show that the some of the risks, at least, maybe all of the risks associated with being in a larger body is mitigated by fitness. So 
The studies are very clear that dieting is not generally something that is long-term beneficial for people because most people who do lose weight will regain the weight that they lose, oftentimes repeatedly in a process that is known as weight cycling. And weight cycling turns out to have independent health ill effects on the body, like cardiovascular problems, like metabolic problems. It actually increases rates of type 2 diabetes immune dysfunction and also mental health difficulties. But although dieting doesn't seem to be particularly good for our health long term, exercise is really terrific for most people as long as they find a form of exercise that suits their bodies. And a lot of studies have shown that people who are fat and fit have similar profiles in terms of cardiovascular risk to people who are thin and fit. So it may be that that we are emphasizing the weight piece of this very complicated puzzle too much and that fitness, not fatness, should be emphasized as what we need to intervene with, partly because people can usually, if they have access, improve their fitness in various ways or continue health practices to do with fitness that they're already engaging in. It's a behavioral change, whereas people can't directly reduce their weight for the long term, at least, via these interventions of diet and exercise that don't, on average, reduce people's weight in the long term. So study after study shows that people can lose a moderate amount of weight on any number of diets, but the weight comes back really inexorably for the vast majority of people, and between one third and two thirds will end up heavier than they started. So intervening in people's fitness practices looks like it might be a more realistic and practical intervention than trying to reduce their weight long term, which doesn't look like we have safe, effective, humane ways of doing in the long term at the moment. And we can get into it if you would like, but this is also a worry that applies to the new class of weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy, semaglutides, because most people who go onto these drugs do end up going off them because of costs and side effects. And then the weight regain is pretty rapid and nearly total within a year of discontinuation. This is so important, Kate. And like I said, with all of these other issues too, it's this is not what we learn, right? I mean, we have trusted sources that have been telling us the opposite for so long. So this is just so important. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was surprising to me in researching this book, I often expected to find a different picture. But for readers who do want to dive in, there are also really interesting longitudinal studies that I cite in the book showing that for large populations of people, often the best outcomes seem to belong to people who maintained their body weight rather than intentionally losing weight. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this really did defy even some of my assumptions about what this relationship would be, as well as the feasibility of long-term weight loss that it just looks much harder to achieve than many of us have been told all throughout our lifetime. Yep. Totally. And I'm thinking of a hundred personal experiences that we could talk about, but we won't. But yeah, this is uh, really important. 
So the next thing that I wanted to talk about is the BMI. And you mentioned it already in the episode, but this was mind blowing. There's like such an interesting story behind how it came to be and then the stigma and the problems that it's created. So can you tell us the story of the, it's called, it's the body mass index, right? Yes. And it's a simple function of people's height versus weight. And this was developed, and here I'm drawing on brilliant history on the subject by Sabrina Strings, a sociologist and the fat activist and podcaster, Aubrey Gordon, who's written extensively on this subject. And what they have illuminated, among many other authors too, is that the BMI was developed originally based on the ideas of one Adolphe Kedelet, who was a 19th century Belgian astronomer, and who decided that the average body was the ideal one, which just doesn't follow, but also his average body was based exclusively on Belgian military men in the 19th century. So why we should be regarding this as the standard normatively for human bodies today is anyone's guess. But this was adapted during the 20th century by Ansel Keys in the 1970s to become the BMI that we know today. And it just has so many flaws. It doesn't differentiate muscle versus fat on someone's body. It doesn't make accommodations for different racial groups, often have different relationships with weight and health. It doesn't accommodate the fact that different age groups have different kinds of statistical relationships between getting older, for example, means that having a certain amount of fat on your body actually turns out to be protective. So there are just so many people who get classified according to their BMI as being too heavy when according to their particular race and age, they're actually in a class of people who are protected by being in this BMI category. But it's just way too monolithic. And yes, it really doesn't make the kinds of fine-grained distinctions that would be useful in this connection. And it's notoriously bad at assessing the health, particularly of Black women, of people who are over 60. It's a really crude measure, and it was never intended to be a measure of individual health. It was intended as a population measure, and it didn't even represent anything like the population that we have today. Yeah, it's so important for people to know this also. I remember going to like PE classes in college and having to write it like weigh in, measure ourselves. They had mm -hmm. calipers for us to pinch like different parts of our bodies. And it was, it's just like so anxiety producing, I think across the board for everyone. But again, your book helped me realize like, whoa, this is so much harder for some people than others too. But just how arbitrary for it to be based on even it's based on men. So it, how could it even be relevant to any, you know, female bodies? Yes. Either. And it was changed arbitrarily in 1998 change right. to fall in line with the, the World Health Organization's latest recommendations. But it used to be that a BMI of um, 27 or 28, depending on gender, was where you began to be considered overweight but now it's a BMI of 25. And there was no particularly good reason for that change. Part of the rationale was just to have a nice figure that would be easier for doctors and patients to remember. So again, it was really not based on measuring populations and figuring out what health risks started at what weight. 
for different mm-hmm. people, it really is a very arbitrary and crude measure and incredibly reductive of human yeah. bodies, especially when we can measure lots of health outcomes directly and in ways that are much less stigmatizing. So we can take people's blood pressure and we can give them blood work and we can do all sorts of much more fine grained and probative stuff that doesn't involve just making them weigh themselves in school in ways that contribute to some of the fat stigma that I've mentioned. And that, yeah, really doesn't take into account individual differences. Yep. So you mentioned how race can intersect with anti-fatness and fat phobia. Could you talk about that a little bit more and talk about how fat phobia is a form of structural oppression that intersects with lots of other forms of structural oppression? Yeah, this is a crucial piece of the picture. And here again, I'm going to draw on really groundbreaking work by Sabrina Strings, the professor of sociology at UCLA, who has shown that fat phobia is a really quite recent form of systemic oppression. This isn't to say there aren't notes of anti-fatness in human history. It's patchy, it's mixed, but oftentimes fat was regarded as a sign of luxury and wealth and abundance until the mid 18th century, when what happened basically was the Slave trade was burgeoning in England and France, and with that burgeoning of the transatlantic slave trade in the mid-18th century, white men were looking for a way to differentiate white bodies from the black bodies who they were enslaving so brutally and in ever-increasing numbers. And it was then that an association between fatness and blackness began to be drawn, not based on any actual empirical science or data gathering, but based on racist pseudoscience that held that the black body was fat and then held that fatness was a sign of being quote-unquote primitive and quote-unquote barbaric, all of these incredibly hideous racist notions. So we need to be very clear about this history, I think. It's not that fatness was derogated and then fatness and blackness were associated. It's rather that fatness and blackness were associated and then fatness came to be derogated shortly thereafter in order to justify practices of slavery. And this is then seen ratcheting up in the norm that then white American women were highly subject to, particularly Protestant American women, of thinness becoming more and more in during the 19th and then 20th centuries. And this has resulted in today a set of tragic intersections that are illuminated both by Strings and the scholar Deshaun Harrison, who has shown that the idea of the fat black mask body is often used now as a pretext for police brutality. So Michael Brown in Ferguson, Eric Garner in Staten Island, these men were horrifically murdered, state executions by cops who used the size of their bodies in various ways to justify these inexcusable acts. So the intersection between racism and fat phobia kills. I've never also felt more moved by Lizzo as you're talking, like Mm -hmm. the album cover of her. I was just listening to some Lizzo songs and I glanced at my phone and saw the little thumbnail of her album cover, which is her, I think, nude 
body just mm. unapologetically front and center. And she just, I mean, I always thought that was really striking and really great, but the courage and kind of the political act, I guess, I thought of it more as a personal act or an emotional yeah. or a psychological act, which it is all of those things, but it is kind of a political act now that I think about it. Completely so- political because often yeah. black women's bodies have been the ones who have been targeted by mm-hmm racist and misogynistic forces where their intersection for listeners who haven't heard this term before is called misogynoir. And this is Mm -hmm. a term coined by the black queer feminist Moya Bailey. And so much of the intersection between misogynoir and fat phobia takes the form of shaming black women for their bodies, their body size, and then neglecting them within the healthcare system in ways that can have really tragic outcomes. So we both troll that, oh, we're so concerned about Black women's health because Black women do happen to have the highest average BMI of any comparable subgroup uh, in America today. But Black women also face the fewest health complications at higher BMI categories. And yet we troll, we hand ring about Black women's health. And then when you actually look at what is being done to help Black women's health, we see that actually they're facing horrific negligence and misogynoir within a medical system that, for example, has resulted in Black women having three to four times the maternal mortality rates as white women because they are just so not served by the medical system as it exists. So if we actually want to improve the health of Black women, why not improve maternal medicine for Black women who are not being treated adequately and are facing huge health risks because of the system, not because of the size of their bodies. So yeah, I ended up not talking as much about Lizzo in this book just because there is current controversy about how she has treated some of the people in her employment. But people can be complicated. Oh, yeah, there have been huge lawsuits and controversies about this. But there is no doubt that some of what she has done in terms of fat black women representation has been a real force for good in the world. And that is an incredibly brave political act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even though there are questions about other aspects of her treatment of workers that, yeah, are still being resolved and which we, yeah, should be concerned about. Hmm. Thanks for pointing that out. Okay, one of the most striking pieces of data that you share in the book that was really arresting for me was you talk about this research project at Harvard in 2019. And this is a research project on implicit bias. So the things that society like as a whole has negative bias toward, and it was race, skin tone, sexual orientation, age, disability, and body weight. And of all of those biases, anti-fatness is the only one that has gotten worse since Mm -hmm. 2007. All the others have made progress and people are more empathic and more compassionate. Anti-fatness has actually gotten worse in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And your book says that the majority of people canvas still harbored explicit anti-fat biases in 2016. So, What are those negative biases that people have toward fatness? And why do you think that this is happening, Kate? 
Yeah, it's so important. And I want to be clear that sometimes these results are construed as fat phobia is the last acceptable prejudice. And that is not true if only that were true. But unfortunately, mm. there'll never be a last acceptable form of prejudice. There are still enormous amounts of homophobia and racism and sexism and all all of it. But it is true that I think there's a certain complacency among liberals and progressives when it comes to fat phobia, which I think shows up in the way that, yeah, this was the only form of implicit bias that just, as you said, is actually increasing. And it was the form of explicit bias that was decreasing the most slowly of any of the biases studied. And they didn't study every form of bias, but they did study, as you said, disability, race, skin tone, sexuality, and age, as well as body weight. So I think there are a couple of reasons why we might see this. One is that there has been a kind of moral panic about the so-called obesity epidemic, and there has been a labeling of quote-unquote obesity as the disease, which, look, I think some people who are in larger bodies view that as a helpful way of framing things, which reduces personal blame. Uh, for them. But I think that from my perspective, we see actually increasing amounts of stigma when we label something as a disease, when it's at most a risk factor for actual diseases. Um, and certainly the labeling of obesity as a disease, there is some evidence that it was driven more by the attempt to sell weight loss drugs than by the actual medical reasons to do this. So the advisory committee to the AMA that made this decision to label obesity a disease actually recommended that the AMA shouldn't call obesity a disease because it was based on the BMI, which is notoriously problematic. Um, so that's one reason that we see a lot of moral panic about increasing numbers of fat people and the health status of fat people that is both somewhat exaggerated in terms of, yes, there has been a real uptick in rates of fatness, but it is partly a response to the fact that the change in classifications for overweight and so-called obese bodies, which was made in 1998, means that some of that uptick is just a product of changing classification standards. And also, as we've discussed, while I would certainly never deny that there are correlations between being very heavy and having certain health problems, we can be too quick to assume that it's causation rather than mere correlation. And certainly people who are judged to be too fat by the medical establishment often don't have elevated risk factors um, for certain diseases at a BMI of 25 or 30. There really isn't uh, statistical evidence that you're at this elevated risk that doesn't kick in until a heavier BMI of 35 or 40. So that's one of the reasons that the bias has increased this real discourse about what are we going to do about all the fat people that is both stigmatizing and often really oversimplifies the picture that is complicated. But I think part of it too is a failure of political solidarity. So as fat people, and I completely understand this, but we're often tempted to think about there being a thin person within us kind of waiting to break free triumphantly, that the next mm -hmm. diet around the corner will yield a thin person. And so we don't tend to necessarily want to identify as fat. We see ourselves as merely temporarily fat, despite the evidence that for someone who was classified as I once was as severely obese in quotes, 
the chances of ever achieving a so-called normal weight is vanishingly small. It's under 0.1 of a percent. But we don't see people really joining forces with other larger people. We see lots of people wanting to escape that classification. And as a result, I think, although of course there is a rich and powerful tradition of fat activism, it still doesn't have quite the political momentum that I wish it did, thus resulting in these biases not really being challenged quite as widely and effectively as would be healthy and make for greater justice for people of every size. Well, hence the need for your book, right? <laughs> I mean, because that's the piece of like, that's the consciousness raising piece of this, I think, at least so more people are educated about it. And again, more empathic and compassionate and actually know the real data and the real science behind it. So hopefully this can start to change the culture. Thanks. I mean, I just see it as one small piece in a bigger conversation, but I'm glad to lend my voice to what feels like a growing choir of people saying, hey, this is a political issue and we need to yep. be serious about it. Yep. I'll say one term that came up in this section of the book that was maybe people know this term, but I hadn't heard it before I read your book is concern trolling. Oh, and yeah. that was so, so accurate when I think about the conversations I've had with people about weight issues and the, mm -hmm. the, like you said, the panic over the uh, quote unquote obesity epidemic that people just say, well, I, I'm just so worried. And that you get this right on the micro mm -hmm. level too in families, a mom saying to her kid like, oh, I'm mm -hmm. just worried about you, right? So can you talk about concern trolling a little bit and whether that's actually compassionate or helpful or not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have the general belief that one's body is really no one else's business. And so a lot of what happens is both disingenuous and intrusive. Asking someone in a supposed tone of concern, I'm worried about your health, often feels like a form of judgment and shaming when it's attached to weight rather than being like, oh, you know, can I do anything that would actually be helpful and productive in your life? It feels like adding to the weight stigma that has demonstrably bad health effects. And in addition to that, concern trolling is often disingenuous. The concern is often not really coming from a place of actually wanting to help someone as evidenced by the fact that a lot of concern trolling about fat people's health is offered by people who wouldn't take basic safety precautions for public health, like wearing a mask indoors at the height of the pandemic or getting vaccinated. So the fig leaf is a little bit off after the pandemic. Some of the people who are most worried about the health of fat people aren't doing the kinds of things that are useful ways of contributing to the public good of collective health by helping not spread, say, contagious diseases and illnesses. So that's part of it. But also oftentimes it's a way of saying that someone's body is attracting negative attention by that person and that their body looks like it may have gained weight or become larger or whatever it is where I promise that a person in a larger body is acutely aware of their size and of weight gain and doesn't need it pointed out to them. And similarly, you would have to be a fat rock sheltered Martian to need the advice that diet and exercise, diet and exercise. 
<laughs> or to miss the memo that there is a new class of weight loss drugs on the market like Ozempic and Wegovy. So, yeah, what are these conversations meant to yield is a really good question to ask for anyone tempted to engage in them. And mm. the likelihood is that they'll just make someone in a larger body feel stigmatized and othered and alienated and won't help her one bit. So, yeah, a lot of these conversations just need to be retired. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of the conversation, Kate, but I did want to close by asking, and this is kind of what you've just been talking about, maybe for some takeaways for listeners who identify as fat, what would be a takeaway or two for them? And then listeners who don't identify as fat, what would you want a takeaway to be for them? So I think for listeners who identify as fat, I would say, first of all, sympathy and solidarity. It's really hard to be a person in a fat body facing a fat phobic world and that I am someone who believes that you're entitled to do what you want with your body and that I know many people who identify as fat do want to lose weight and I certainly don't begrudge anyone that journey. But my concern is that for those of you who are in larger bodies, that many of us feel obligated rather than merely entitled to lose weight and that the weight loss isn't permanent in most cases. And to talk about my own case for a moment, I was in a much larger body and I was really healthy and really happy, but for the fat phobic world. So I think it's worth considering, is this problem the world's or is it my body's? Maybe we're made to feel that our body is the problem when it's actually the fat phobia that's plaguing us. And there may be in some cases a sense that we need to shrink ourselves when actually we're just fine the way we are and should embrace our fatness as just a valuable form of human diversity, which is, I know, a controversial view, but is how I've come to look at it. And for those who aren't in fat bodies, um, there was a really useful question asked by Aubrey Gordon on her Instagram that I think is actually applicable to anyone, but especially thinner people, which is how are you showing up in the world for people who are larger? this year or for that matter, full stop. Are we making an effort to combat fat stigma and fat shaming? If someone we're in conversation with starts concern trolling about people's health or making fun of someone by saying, well, looks like they've enjoyed too many slices of pie or whatever, are we making an effort to intervene as we would with a form of bullying that is more commonly recognized? Are we making an effort for um, the kinds of inclusion that are material? Do we, for example, as a teacher, um, and this is something I face when I go into my classrooms at Cornell, do we have a classroom that will accommodate a range of body shapes and sizes in the very simple sense of having some chairs without arms that would be comfortable for people who are in larger bodies to sit in without feeling constrained and restricted? Are we making an effort to contribute, for example, to the efforts to legislate against weight-based discrimination, which are taking hold in certain states? So for listeners who don't know, weight-based discrimination is legal in most places currently. It's only illegal in Michigan and Washington state at this time. And there are also some jurisdictions, including now New York City, that have banned it. But 
states like Colorado are introducing this legislation, and it would be really helpful for larger people to be able to sue their employer for discriminating against them based on weight or for not hiring them based on weight. So those are just a smattering of the efforts that I hope the book reveals we can contribute to regardless of our body size to make the world just and kind and inclusive towards everyone, regardless of what you think about the relationship between weight and health, you can probably do better in supporting people with a range of body types in living the best, happiest, healthiest lives they can without contributing to the weight stigma that really ails us. Beautiful. Well, Kate Mann, thank you again so much for being here. Thank you for all of your work. Thank you for this book. And listeners, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's called Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. And again, I recommend that you read all of Kate's books. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It was a delight. And that wraps up today's episode. Before I go, I want to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our editing and production and Aubrey Iyer for our social media. And as always, I want to thank you listeners for being here. And if you want to show your appreciation for this excellent ad-free content, the most helpful thing you can do is to forward this episode to your friends and family and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews really do help people find the podcast, and the more people listen, the greater the impact of this grassroots movement to break down the patriarchal structures in our institutions and our relationships and build egalitarian structures in their place. Thanks again for joining me, and make sure to tune in next time for another fascinating episode on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.